take a break. That's a writer when Isaac is born and whatnot. We'll take a brief break uh, because we, we find ourselves in the same book for, for months months on end. Um, and I think we'll do something briefly and then we'll return back. So I will retire the day we finish Genesis 50 uh, if the Lord tarries. Um, but if we get to chapter 20, we're, we're what, 40% through? Three years into this, but uh, at least two years into it. No, I think it is three. I think we started in 19. Anyways, uh, Genesis 18. Uh, here we start a new narrative unit. Actually, we're, we're, we're almost finishing a narrative unit. If you think about what we've seen in the story of, of, of Abraham, starting at the end of chapter 11, but really traditionally it starts in chapter 12 with the covenant. Um, and to where we have here, what we have, the predominant story is the, how God will fulfill the promise of land and lineage. Uh, and, and that's, we've been kind of wore out with it, right? Chapter 12, the promise. Chapter 15, the promise. Chapter 17, the promise, right? And in chapter 18, in this passage, we're going to see the promise again. Yet another narrative that, that we keep returning to, we'll call it the B-plot, if you will, and they are connected, is this stuff with Sodom. You remember early on, and we'll, we'll look at this verse later, Lot chose Sodom. You remember, and, and the reason that is, is God is blessing Abraham in a foreign land that is supposed to be his, but it isn't yet. And he's blessing him materially, but not as a family. Right? And eventually, this town isn't big enough for the two of them, and so they split, and Lot chooses Sodom. And the text tells us, again, we'll pull this up later, it's a wicked city. Well, then we see chapters later, Abraham has to go save Lot. All right? And we have this exchange with the uh, king of Sodom. And remember the scene with Melchizedek? You should. We spent like eight weeks on it. And, um, and, and so now what we see in chapters 18 and 19 is the conclusion of that B-plot. This is the destruction of Sodom. Now, we can only introduce this narrative, but this is the introduction uh, to it. I want to start by... Uh, contrasting and uh, comparing the story of the flood and the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This will be more apparent whenever we actually read the story, but since this is chapter 18 and 19 are, are one narrative unit, I think it's best to look at it here. Um, start with the contrast. First of all, one involves water, the other involves fire. Right? Brimstone's coming down. A clear difference, water and fire. Uh, very, very different. One was local. The other, I believe, is, is universal flood. Uh, if you, there is a group at the Grand Canyon. Actually, uh, Lane, you could probably help me with this. I don't know if there's associated answers in Genesis or, or the uh, Creation Institute, Creation Research, the other Young Earth. But I think you can take a tour of the Grand Canyon, and they'll show you, uh, you know, the rock layers and stuff, and how that, how the flood helps you. I, I, I don't know. Um, uh, but so, so two very different. Uh, thirdly, I find this fascinating. The angels, um, um, this isn't the flood, so I put this wrong here, my bad. The angels enjoy a lavish feast with Abraham here in chapter 18. Um, and then later, uh, you, you, so I put this in the wrong place. Uh, you, get, you get the opposite story, right? So Abraham offers food to the angels. In the Sodom story, the angels are the food of the men. Right, we'll get to this when we talk about hospitality. Uh, now, the reason that is important is because food and uh, desire, particularly sexual desire, are often equated in the Bible. For example, later on in Genesis, 
there's a story about Esau giving up his birthright for a bowl of soup. Right? What good is a birthright if I'm, if I'm just going to die? And then we get a story about the Israelites in the wilderness. And what do they do? They say, we would rather be slaves. We'd rather be fed than to be free in the wilderness. Um, and then Jesus is tempted the same way. Uh, man should not live by bread alone. Right, but by everywhere proceeds the mouth of God. And then there's a few other verses that do this. For such persons do not serve our Christ, but their own appetites. Well, he's not talking about a Baptist preacher who always has a, a fried drumstick in one hand. He's saying here, these, these are our spiritual desires, our moral and ethical desires. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.4, a false teacher is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And they usually get their own show on CNN. Uh, 1 Timothy 6 also says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Well, we know that part. We skip the next part. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. It's food language. And, and this is one of the things I've, I've noticed. So, so last week, after we got back vacation, I started to diet again. Um, uh, when I got COVID, I lost 8 to 10 pounds. Uh, my mother's lost like 40. Uh, but I made myself eat the first week. And then once I knew I had COVID, I just gave up on everything. Um, but so I lost that weight. If you know anything about weight loss is it's very easy to put that back on. Like it's super easy. Um, and what happened after COVID was I got really hungry. I got the munchies all the time and I hadn't been to Colorado. And, and, and so I put all this weight on. Then I went to youth camp and then I went to vacation and all this sort of stuff. Right. And I, we just ate like pigs. So uh, I, I need to lose five, ten pounds or something like that. One thing I found is exercise is easy. Dieting is hard. Yeah, that, that'll preach, right? right. I'll, I'll have y'all dancing in, in the uh, uh, aisles before you know it. But, but chances are you can do some sort of exercising uh, regimen walking is perfectly fine. Swimming perfectly fine, right? It's 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 not that difficult. Dieting is something else. So for me, I'm trying to cut out a lot of my cokes, and so I've been having the caffeine headaches for days. Um, in fact, I did CPR training last Thursday, and I meant to take some ibuprofen because I hadn't had anything. And training was at one time did I show it was like yeah three three thirty something like that and that's when it starts to hit me because usually for lunch I'll have a can of coke and I've been watching my, my caffeine or, or sugar intake I should say caffeine is well anyways um, so I should have taken something before and I didn't so after we did CPR we did the first aid I don't do ladies and I'm sorry I'm gonna a, a, a caffeine headache and I took a Pepsi with me hoping to to push it well, was too late right and 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 it's hard it really is hard. Uh, to do that. And I am falling in love with Coke Zero, even though I don't like it, but it's better than Diet Coke. And if you're going to be miserable, I choose Coke Zero. All right. um, so uh, a lot of flavored waters I, I do, the little powder stuff. Anyway, so, so dieting is the hard part. Well, we get that in the Bible, right? It makes sense. Right? The exercise of faith is pretty easy. You can go to church. I ain't that hard. Let's be honest. You can read your Bible. It's not that difficult. Fighting off temptation is hard. That's hard. Losing your, 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 your immoral gut, that's difficult, right? Um, and we, we get this in the narrative. So even though I put this in, it has nothing to do with the flood. Um, so I, I made that mistake in my notes. I just realized that. But the contrast, I think, with Abraham has a feast with God and the angels. Um, the angels become the feast later on. 
Uh, and then this fourth one. In the flood, divine beings mate with humans, right? I, we talked about the sons of God, daughters of men. I'm going with a traditional reading, okay? I'm sure I've got it recorded somewhere on, on our website and on my podcast. We look at all the options of Genesis 6. So let's just go with a traditional reading. There the story is uh, angels come down and actively procreate with humans. This story of Sodom is the opposite. Angels come down, but it's men who are coming to procreate with the angels. It's essentially the same story, just, just from the other end of the coin. Right? So, fascinating contrast. Well, let's look at the parallels here. Uh, the, both parallels, uh, both stories, a single man and his family escaped divine destruction. Right, so you got Noah and his crew. Uh, by the way, they're sons. If you want another contrast, Noah has sons. Uh, Lot has daughters. Right, so, so that would be another contrast. Secondly, the surviving patriarch is intoxicated and violated by his children, which affects future generations. Now, I don't know what we're going to do when we're going to get to this with Lot. We will make sure the kids are downstairs, <laughs> maybe in a different building whenever we do that story. But, um, yeah, so, so remember Noah? Uh, he drinks the fruit of the vine, right? That's the story of, of, of Adam. And what happens? You have a scene of sin regarding the seed. And so, remember, Noah doesn't curse his son Ham. He curses his grandson, his offspring. It's the, it's the, it's the uh, battle of the seeds. Well, Lot's going to end up doing the same thing. Out of the generations from his daughters come uh, a, a, a sort of generational uh, warfare, enmity, to use Genesis 3, between the seed of the woman through the line of Israel and uh, the, the descendants of, of Lot through his daughters. Um, I got one more. Uh, there's sexual deviancy in both. We saw that with, with the angels, right? Uh, it's, it's a major plot point in, in both. So what we see then is, is what God is doing at the local level is exactly what God did at, at the universal level. He promised he wouldn't do, do, uh, flood the world again. But with a city as wicked as Sodom, he will certainly uh, blow it out of oblivion and put a big salt sea on top of it. Um, so with that... Um, um, yeah, so, so um, also a few other things. A one, notice there in verse 1 of chapter 18, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. We'll, we'll look at all that in a minute. As he sat at the door in the tenth heat of the day. This is roughly noon o'clock, right? And that is it's true now. Between what, noon and four is when you don't want to be outside now, you know? Um, and, and so what, what you get is... Uh, in the story of Abraham is God shows up and there's a feast during the brightest part of the day. In the story of Sodom, where the acts of treachery take place, it's at night. And so when the sun is rises, God comes down and destroys it. So I do think there's a play on day and night. By the way, John, the gospel writer, does this. John chapter 4, the woman at the whale. What time does, does that happen? It's noon o'clock. The sun is right there. In chapter 3, someone comes to visit Jesus at night. The religious leader comes at night. The Samaritan woman, who has relationship issues, comes during the day. Right. Her sins were very apparent. So she comes to the Savior who's still alive in the world. Right. John plays with that light darkness throughout. Jesus walks out on the water at night, and, and they see him. They assume he's a ghost. So how do they see one in the middle of the dark while it's stormy. I tell you, it's because he's light. Do a word study of John's gospel. You can go back to my devotions during COVID. 
Um, and in every chapter, there's a theme of light, life, lamb, logos, all those four L's. Uh, anyway, that's not why we're here. Um, so, uh, also, another connection between the theophany Abraham has here and the Sodom story is that God receives hospitality, um, but Lot and his, when he brings on the same angels, the two of the angels, they do, they are, they do not receive hospitality by, and now Lot does, but not by the others. This is important uh, because um, Ezekiel, if you read Ezekiel wrong, uh, there are those who argue the real sin of Sodom and why God destroyed it is because of the lack of hospitality. Have you heard this? People who argue that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. This is always the context, right? The Bible don't condemn that. Jesus never said anything about it. He's pretty clear about the whole man, woman, getting married sort of thing. But anyways, um, uh, what they'll say is, well, God didn't destroy Sodom because of homosexuality. He destroyed it because of lack of hospitality. And they will always go to this verse. Um, and is behold, this was the guilt of your sister, sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And and you can you can stop there and say, oh, okay. Uh, Ezekiel the prophet is saying the Sodom destroyed because of hospitality. Then it goes on. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Where in the Bible does it connect the word abomination and a specific sin? It's almost always a sexual sin. Almost always. Just read Leviticus. It's very clear. Very clear this. Because it isn't just in Sodom homosexuality. It's, it's whatever the term will be when you're trying to sleep with angels. I don't know. what. I'm sure there's a letter for it in the LGBTQ+, right? You know, there, there's a letter there, okay? Um, the the uh, governor of New York, um, he, uh, his daughter came out as... Uh, well, I'm not going to do that because recording. Never mind. I'm going to make a joke. Anyways. Um, but um, so, so however, with that said, there is a contrast between how Abraham shows hospitality, which, which was a matter of integrity and, and moral integrity in the ancient world, something we've kind of lost today. Let's be honest. If someone shows up unannounced to your house, you don't like that at all. God shows up unannounced to Abraham, right? And he was somewhat okay with that. But that made sense. That makes sense in, in that world. In Trinidad, when we were in Trinidad, that made sense. They loved it. Um, it didn't work in, in, our, in our culture today. Okay, um, let's move on. Just start in verse one. Uh, notice there, the Lord appeared. That's Yahweh appeared. Now, verse two adds that Yahweh appeared with two men. Now, this is a theophany, not the first one Abraham's had. We did a whole study on this. Um, and, and how the theophanies, here's your word lane, were Christophanies. That is that what you have are embodied beings here. They're described as men, not as angels. They are described as angels in chapter 19, verse 1. But in chapter 18, they are described as men, and they function as men. They are physical beings. They eat. Right? Now, that is a problem in the Jewish mindset because God is spirit. But in the Christian mindset, it, it makes sense. Right? Even if it's a temporary embodiment, because we have one whom we worship who is eternally embodied. There is a man sitting at the right hand throne of the Father. His name is Jesus. He had an accent and everything. Right? So, so this makes sense to, to us. Now, Abraham, whether or not he knows it initially, there's some debate about that. He at least does figure out that one of these gentlemen is God himself. Again, he's, he's met 
uh, Yahweh before. He's had this theophany before. So verse 22, uh, it says he was left alone with Yahweh. Uh, verse 25, uh, Abraham appeals to God's justice. Uh, you are a God of justice. How, how can you destroy these, these people? Uh, verse 26 literally says, Yahweh said. Uh, 27, Abraham says clearly he is speaking to Yahweh. It's repeated in verse 31. Verse 32, Abraham uses Adonai in verses 27 and 31, but he uses Yahweh in verse 32. In verse 32, it says that Yahweh left. This is clearly, clearly a, a, a theophany. And notice where does God show up? He shows up by a tree. And not just any trees, the oaks of Mamre. Now, this means that Abraham is still a sojourner in the land. So even though we've been looking at Abraham as the promise he's going to be a father, with that promise comes land. And that hasn't been fulfilled, and it won't be fulfilled in his lifetime. That won't be fulfilled until the days of Joshua. Um, and, and so by telling us where Abraham is, is a reminder, this isn't his home. This is borrowed property. Um, and Mamre, this, these oaks of Mamre are important because Mamre has shown up several times. Chapter 13, Abram moved his tent and came to settle the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. There he built an altar to the Lord, chapter 14. And then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of, of Mamre. Uh, so why is this important? In the book of Genesis in particular, when you see a tree and an altar, what should that remind us of? Where else in Genesis do you see the presence of God and a tree of significance? It's the Garden of Eden. Okay? So if you go to chapter 13, what does Abraham do? He receives the promise. You remember chapter 12 is when he goes to Egypt, lies about his wife, and she makes him get her a very big ring for, for anniversary. And, and, and he plants his home. It's going to be in Hebron by a tree. And there he builds this altar. And this is where we find Abraham all the time. Near the altar by the tree. This is Abraham making a, an oasis, a garden, if you will, in the middle of a wilderness. It's the story of the Garden of Eden. It is God taking back the chaos of creation. This is the creation story. Remember that Genesis 1-2 is, is there's darkness uh, uh, over the earth and water and all that sort of stuff. What does God do? He pulls back that chaos. He separates the water. He brings light to the darkness. He brings land out of the chaotic water. He, he adds beauty and design and creatures and humans to be vice regions over. What happens? Those vice regions betray him. So you get decreation, particularly in the, in the flood story. But what do we get? We get God arresting order out of this chaos. And Abraham chooses to have the presence of God by a tree that he will call his home. It's, it's the same story. And it's not an accident then. God shows up in Abraham's Eden. It's not an accident that that happens. And it's in the heat of the day, uh, which means this is an inconvenient time. Let, let me give some advice I've learned in life. When people show up unannounced at your house, it is always an inconvenient time. Always. I tell young ministers this, is that when it comes to death, it is always inconvenient. No one will pass away and you will be asked to do a funeral the week that you are less busy. You're right, looking for something to do. It is the weeks you are slammed you're, you're going to go through this, right? That's, that's the way life works. Weddings are the same way, right? Family drama is the same way, right? Uh, you know, this is the way life works. So here's Abraham. I'm sure he got up at the crack of dawn working, and now it's the heat of the day. It's time for siesta. And guess who comes knocking on the door? 
Jesus. <laughs> He's literally knocking on, on, on the door, uh, wanting, wanting in. And true hospitality is going to require a lot of work, as, as we'll see. So in verses 2 and 3, we, we, we meet the three men. He lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing in front of him. By the way, the word men, there the Hebrew word is man, ish. It's the generic word for man. It's not Adam, Adam, it's ish. A very generic word for, for man. Um, so, and that's always applied to, to human beings, right? So these are embodied divine beings. Um, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, that's Adonai, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servants. So, um, yeah, I think I can skip, skip a lot of that. Chapter 19, verse 1, they're called angels. I've already, I've already mentioned that. Um, now, this is interesting. I, I, I looked this up. Angels, the next time an angel shows up, other than the angel of the Lord, right? So let's, let's skip him. He's already shown up with Hagar. He'll show up with Abraham and Jacob and all that. Other than him, uh, the next time angels show up in Genesis and in chapter 28, they're not very prominent. The cherubim are in chapter 3, right? That, that may be a different class of divine beings uh, because angels in the Bible that are clearly called angels don't have wings. Cherubim and seraphim have wings. Um, angels are almost always embodied beings. Um, but chapter 28, he dreamed, and behold, there was the ladder, right? He sees angels ascending and descending. Right? Now, that's the next time angels show up. Now, again, the angel of the Lord will, will show up in important times. But the angels aren't, aren't, aren't as prominent in Genesis. I found that sort of fascinating. I don't know if you will or not. Four and five, we've we got to move, move forward. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Paul's there. Do you understand why Jesus washing feet is so significant? Jesus is the guest, yet he's having to wash the disciples' feet. Whosoever upper room that was failed. The disciples should have done that. But Jesus does it. He stoops. So here's Abraham saying, here's our guest, because one of them is Jesus. Um, we, need, we need to take care of the feet. Um, and you rest yourself under the tree. We'll come to that. Uh, verse 5, While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, after that you may pa pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. Now, Abraham prefers food and water for them. He'll, he'll prepare a, a big meal. This is the initial part of it. Um, he washes their feet. Again, they are embodied beings. They're, they're not just spiritual beings. Um, and they're encouraged to rest under the tree. That phrase is interesting. From my word study of it, so this is me, not someone with uh, a funny accent, book deals, and, and, and an academic credentials. This is my study of it. That phrase is usually in reference to two things. One, it is a place of judgment. In the Old Testament, it's a place of judgment. Those who think they have created their own Eden, but they've done so in the context of sin. So God is saying, I'm going to find you under your tree and I'm going to destroy you. It's a place of rest. Think about it. If you grew up playing outside all the time, I did. Cowboys and Native Americans, because you can't say Indians anymore. And, and when it got hot, we weren't allowed to go inside because our babysitter was watching soap operas. So what do we do? We sat under the tree in shade, right? We, we, we get this imagery, right? On a hot summer day, I walked here. The shade by Save-A-Lot is the best part of the walk because everything else is all sun. Right? I love that part, man. It's so good. It, it makes you not regret walking in nearly 90 degree, degree heat. So that's, that's, that's the common theme, right? You've created this world of peace. You think it's peaceful. I'm going to destroy it. 
The other reference is it's a place of messianic rests. Let me give you two examples of this. One of them is from one of my favorite passages. Michael 4, 4. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You see, you see the rest there. This is God's blessing. And, and it's the prophets. I think he's speaking of messianic rest there. Zechariah 3 is clearly describing messianic rest because it's the angel of the Lord, you may remember in this vision, where Joshua the high priest is covered in excrement and he cleanses Joshua who represents Israel. And then he gives this promise. In that day, that's, that's the day of Messiah. That's the, that's the day that we're waiting for. Declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his victory. All right. So, so, so what is Abraham doing here? He, he's saying to the Lord, I want you to rest under the tree. By the way, let me give you one more example of this that you may find fascinating. John chapter 1. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. We've talked about this story, son. But it's interesting language that John chooses because John knows his Bible. And he knows it well. Well, like any wise man, what does Abraham do here in verse 6? Now, remember, God showed up to his house. Fellas, if you answer the door, right, and, and it is during your siesta, and you realize it's, it's Jesus, you're like, we've got to get something on the table. Men, what are you immediately going to do? You're going to call for your wife and get help, right? That's what he does. Verse 6, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, right? <laughs> I mean, he ain't that dumb, right? He has his moments. He ain't that dumb. Um, calls his wife. And said, quick, three seas of fine flour kneaded and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good. This is a good meat, right? Bit of beef, medium rare too. And gave it to the young man. Your translation may say servant. The, the, the Hebrew says young man. Who prepared it quickly. Uh, verse 8. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared. He set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. You see, Abraham is finding rest in the presence of God, in his Eden. Man, if, if only I could think of an application we could do that for your spiritual life, right? There's rest under the tree with Jesus. It's, it's just so good. Well, he, of course, provides you know, the, the best of the best, right? He, he, he kills the fatty calf, uh, gets fresh milk from the cow. For those of you who, who grew up in, in, in a better America, uh, right? Now, now, notice verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. That phrase stuck out to me, right? Because that phrase, where is blank, has shown up two other times. And the first one is, where are you? Remember, in the garden? Here we have yet another garden scene, or at least an Eden scene. Where are you? Here is, where's Sarah? Are you prepared all this? We have a feast in the Garden of Eden. You have a feast with all the trees and the fruit and everything in the presence of God. You, you have this. And the question remains, where is Sarah? The other is God asks Cain the same question. Where's Abel, your brother? Here is where's Sarah, your wife? Same sort of question that, uh, that we have here. So she's in the tent. In verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, notice here that this promise made to Abraham and Sarah is a reaffirmation from chapter 17. Actually, it was just a few verses ago. At the end of chapter 17, uh, God says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Remember, not Ishmael. You want it with Ishmael. I with Isaac, the younger 
will rule over the, the, the older. And we talked about election and all that sort of stuff last week. Whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. That's got to just be awful for Sarah. There's more I think about that. Can you imagine if God said, you're going to wait 12 months to be a mother? I'm going to tell you, nine months of the baby in your womb is torture. It was for my wife. Like My wife was stuck between, I just love feeling the little kicks and thinking about what it's going to be, you know, all, all that stuff. But then she would spend the whole time like, can, can it just get here already? Right? I don't want to hold them in my belly. I want to hold them in my arms. Right? That's got to be torture to Sarah. And she's been waiting 90 years. Now, that is that's absolutely uh, incredible. Um, but, uh, and, and, uh, oh, and I love that she is um, eavesdropping. Don't you? Do you, love, you love that? Eavesdropping. By the way, it's the opposite of Adam and Eve, isn't it? Adam is eavesdropping. It's the serpent and Eve who are in conversation, and she turns, and there's Adam. He doesn't speak, he didn't say anything. Here, it's, it's the wife who's eavesdropping from the tent. Well, um, verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were owed, advancing the years. The way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. In case you forgot that, um, remember that he is 100, she is 90. Uh, respectfully, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Remember, she's eavesdropping. No one is supposed to hear this. Right? She didn't tweet this. This, this, is, this is supposed to be between her and herself. Now, remember, she is not the first person to do this. Abraham did this in the previous chapter. Abraham laughed. You know, he, he fell down, you know, but he either, I don't think he fell down to laugh. I think that's an act of worship, but he's, he still laughed. Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? It's right. a good question to ask. Um, and notice the, the language she uses um, is after I am worn out. That phrase worn out, I believe uh, everywhere else in, in the Old Testament, I'll give you a few examples, is used in the context of clothes wearing down to the point that you can't use them anymore. You all have probably noticed I don't change shoes very often. I wear the same shoes until they're just wore out, right? And these shoes are about to go uh, the way of the buffalo. And, um, I mean, they got holes in them. Um, they're bad because they're running shoes, so when it rains, my feet get wet. But now they've got holes in them. When it sprinkles, it's like I'm, I'm trying to survive Noah's flood. Um, and, and so I, I get this, and we, we get this in the Bible. For example, uh, God says, your clothing in the desert, right, after 40 years, they didn't wear out. Same, same word here. He makes the same promise in 20. I fed you for 40 years, and your clothes didn't, didn't wear out. And it's, it's the same word. Uh, Joshua 9, uh, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, all the provisions were dry and crumbly. Um, is that when they crossed the Jordan? I don't know. Anyways, uh, so, so it's that word. She, she's saying that I am beyond use here. I, I, I'm to, to the point to where I'm at, at the end. Yeah. Oh, the Gibeonites? Yeah, I think you're right. I was thinking Jordan was, Jordan's like chapter 2 or something. That's right before Jericho, I think. I don't, I don't know. Um, oh, and, and one last thing in here in verse 12. Notice, so, so I'm worn out. My Lord is old. My husband is, is old. Um, and then she says, the way, or, I'm sorry, um, shall I have pleasure? Do you all have a different translation there? 
at the end of verse 12, pleasure. Same thing? Don, you got your message? All right. Delight. That's a good word. Okay. Um, shriveled up. Out of work. Out of work. Um, the, the word, this specific word, only appears five times uh, in, in the Bible. It describes luxuries. Dainties was one of the words. That's a word that we should bring back, don't you think? That's a word like my daughter would use when she's playing dolls with her neighbor friends, right? We need to bring that back. Dainties. Uh, pleasures, delights, um, that sort of stuff. Now, I said that it's only used five times. This is the noun version. It is an old woman like me get pregnant with this old, of a husband, this old man as a husband. <laughs> so, he's not even trying to bring out some of this nuance. All right. Now, this is the, the generic noun. The proper noun you're more familiar with, it's the same exact spelling, vowels and everything, but one is a generic noun, the other is a proper noun. The word is Eden. Shall I have Eden? That's what she says. And that's what Eden means. It's pleasure, delight, luxury, dainties, that sort of stuff. It's paradise. And that's the Hebrew word. Shall I have Eden? And it makes sense, right? Because we're going to see this pattern throughout the Bible. This understanding that when there's infertility with, with the women, there's this sense of loss, a sense of denial. And later we're going to meet two wives of Jacob. And one will say, now that I've borne him a son, he will love me. That's her Eden. That's her Eden. That's what Sarah wants. It's that one thing. We've talked about this before. We all want that one thing we think is our Eden. She says, all I've asked is this one thing and you've denied it to me. God has robbed her of Eden. And the irony of it is, she is sitting comfortably in Eden. Isn't that the story? There's the Oaks of Mamre, the altar, and there is Jesus himself. She says, you have robbed me of heaven itself. And there stands Jesus. John Piper asked a really good question years ago. I, I like to ask people is, if you could have everything you ever wanted or desired in abundance, without end, if Jesus wasn't there, is it heaven? If so, it isn't Jesus that you worship. Something else. If you were robbed of all of those things and had nothing, it had Jesus. Would it be heaven? We've heard this question put differently or, or statement put differently. Whenever someone will say something like, heaven sounds boring if all it is is worship. It's revealed that what makes heaven heaven isn't the gold. It's the man who rules it. Shall I have Eden? And she says, no. You've robbed me of this. Well, let's look at verses 13 to 15 quickly. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? I find this a bit hilarious the way this is written. And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am owed? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
at the appointed time I will return to you. About this time next year, there's that promise again. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. For she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. I just love this. Yeah, huh, uh-uh. Yeah, huh, uh-uh. I mean, it, it is, this is at the level of Google repeating back everything she said, right? I mean, this, this is Alexa, right? You know, someone's watching this, and now their Alexa's going off, and I find that hilarious. And, and, right, and repeating everything she says, like Loki, right? He shows up and signed this document as everything you ever said. This is absurd. It prints off. There it is. I need you to sign this document. Same thing, right? It's got to freak her out, right? You've, you've, you've met some of these people before. Our former DOM in Owen County has since passed away. He, he came to the church I was serving at, and it was Father's Day. And before he got up to preach, he, he was not the most exciting preacher. I will, I will say that. Nice guy. Um, and I leaned over to, to my then girlfriend, fiance, whatever she was. I said, he's going to preach on Father Abraham for Father's Day. And she gives me this weird look. And he goes, well, since it's Father's Day, I'd like to talk about my favorite characters. It's Father Abraham. And she got freaked out. Well, what happened was years before, for some reason, I remembered the one sermon I heard him preach in my home church, which happened to also be on Father's Day. And he preached the same sermon. Now, Look, I don't remember my own sermons. I don't expect you guys to, right? And I just happened to remember that one sermon he preached. And uh, that freaked her out, right? But notice, when confronted with her sin, what does she do? It's not true. It's not my fault. You're putting words in my mouth. Who did that remind you of in the book of Genesis? It's Eve. And Adam. Here she lies... They deflected. Who told you you were naked? It's that woman you gave me. It's your fault. It's that serpent you let sneak in here. It's your fault. It's the same story. History to this day. It's the same story. We've left the Garden of Eden, but we haven't really left. Our hearts haven't changed at all. And notice there what God says, is anything too hard for me? That phrase, too hard, is the first time it shows up in in the Bible. Uh, The word means wonderful, difficult. And you can see how they're related. Is anything too wonderful for me? So wonderful that I can't make it work. Is anything too difficult for me? Is it too hard for me? Can I give you a few examples here? The angel of the Lord will say to to Moses in um, the burning bush, I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders, the hard things, the difficult things. Same thing in in 34. Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels, such as has not been created in all the earth or any nation. It's it's wonders. It's difficult, the hard things. Joshua 3, 5. And Joshua said to people, consecrate yourself. Tomorrow, Yahweh will do difficult things, too hard things, wonderful things. Same word. Uh, Job 37 is a good one. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. That phrase um, is all over the Old Testament. Dozens of it. Wondrous works. The difficult works of God. And just to give you an example, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Sound familiar? It's repeated in the New Testament. It's the same word used here. There is nothing too wonderful. That's the point of this passage. Do you not believe that God can make a 90-year-old woman give birth? Is that too wonderful? Sounds like something that would happen at Eden. Well, I want to finish with this. Grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. 
Remember, the, the passage ends with, with that exhortation. Is there anything too wonderful? Anything too hard? Anything too impossible? And we come to the New Testament, and we've made this point before. We, we see a similar story, right? That you have two women who give birth in Luke chapter 1. This is why Luke spends so much time on the birth of John the Baptist. He's, he's, he's wanting you to see here are two births, and they're essentially the same story. One gets pregnant like Sarah at the end of her life. She's past the, the age of childbearing. The other gives birth and gets pregnant at the beginning of, of, of her ability to have children. But she does so equally impossible because she's not been with a man. It's the same story, but on two different spectrums. But how Mary receives this message is significant, especially in light with what we just read in the story of Sarah. So verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings. Now notice here, you have an angel. Sarah was in the presence of angels. We don't know their names, don't know their stories, but it's angels. He came to her and said, Greetings, favor one, the Lord is with you. The Lord was with Abraham and Sarah, literally, under the tree. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. So you see a reference there to Jacob, the grandson of Abraham and Sarah, and of course David. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's the same question that Sarah's asking, isn't it? How's this be? My husband and I are too old. It's the same question. It's just from a different vantage point in terms of where she is in life. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called a barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Does that sound familiar now? Does it bring out in the text the real power of it? If you want to understand the New Testament, you've got to read your Old Testament. It's an angel saying to a woman who cannot conceive and give birth, nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing's too wonderful for God. Both an angel delivers the message of a son. And this time next year, he'll give birth. Notice her response. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Now, in this story of, of Abraham, the angels depart, don't they? Angels depart to go to Sodom. But they still depart. Same story. But what's the big difference that Luke is showing us here? Mary didn't laugh. That's what we are to see. She didn't laugh. Rather, she believed. There is nothing too wonderful for God. Well, that's good stuff. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your...